Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it's been a year since NASA released the first stunning images from the James Webb Space Telescope, and it has been providing a steady stream of pictures and data that are reshaping our understanding of the universe ever since. Robert Smith, from the University of Alberta, has spent years chronicling the Hubble telescope, and he's been doing the same for James Webb, and he joins us to talk about what we've learned over the past 12 months. There are few names in American history that conjure up the notion of evil as much as Charles Manson. His so-called family killed seven people uh, in two nights in August of 1969. This week, 73-year-old Leslie Van Houten, convicted of the murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, was released on parole, bringing Manson and the crimes committed by the so-called Manson family back into the spotlight. We look into Van Houten and the decision to release her and learn of a Canadian connection to those who long advocated for her freedom. But first, would you buy and share a home with strangers? That's what some are doing now to contend with prohibitively high housing prices, pooling their resources. How does it work? What do you need to know? And what's the outcome? We meet a realtor who works to help people looking to co-own and one of the people he's paired up with another purchaser. Speaking of housing, the Canadian Real Estate Association today downgraded its home sales forecast for this year and next because fewer buyers are jumping into the market. The association said it expects a 6.8% decrease in home sales in 2023 over last year. Back in April, they were looking at the future with uh, rosier, rose-tinted glasses. Now they're not. Uh, the forecast took into account a sales rebound that took shape in most parts of the country back in April, but it also factored in interest rate hikes, which continue to weigh on borrowing costs, of course, and buyer's sentiment. You'll remember earlier this week, Bank of Canada uh, Governor Tiff Macklem uh, raised interest rates another quarter point to 5% and said they needed to do it because delaying action would be an issue. Inflation is still persistent, and they worry they won't reach their target level of 2% until the middle of 2025. Looking ahead, we continue to expect economic growth to moderate and inflation to ease. But this will take longer than we forecast in January and April. As the global economy slows and higher interest rates work their way through the Canadian economy, we expect economic growth to average about 1% through the second half of this year and the first half of next year. And to send some more jitters through the housing market, uh, Macklem says the bank is prepared to raise interest rates again if the economic data warrants it. The new hike, again, from 45 to 5%, ended a months-long pause. I mean, this was the first jump was uh, was last month, then again this month. And it's hitting some mortgage holders particularly hard, uh, especially those with variable rates. Here's what one Toronto-area homeowner, Zoheb Sheikh, said to Global News this week. The rates are like over 6% right now. And due to that interest rate increase, I have like about approximately $600 increase in my monthly mortgage payments. 600 bucks a month, that's a lot of money to pay for what you were already paying for, right? That's just the cost of borrowing going up. So again, as uh, national home sales came flying out of the gates back in April, now with lots of people getting back into the market, sellers and buyers, right now it looks like... People are being a little more hesitant. To explain what they found and why, Sean Cathcart is a senior economist uh, on housing data and market analysis with the Canadian Real Estate Association. And he joins me now. Sean, thank you. Anytime, Ben. I, I guess first, I mean, just because everyone around the country was watching pictures of that storm yesterday. Wow, you're not far from, from that area. That was a violent one. And I've been in some big storms in Ottawa and Montreal over the years. Yeah, it was, uh, it was close enough to us. Uh, not as close as the uh, last tornado. Uh, in 2021, but uh, cl- close enough, and uh, luckily didn't hit us. But then, luckily, uh, not too much damage, and uh, no one got seriously hurt. Right, but lots of tornado warnings and so on going off, and so it's uh, it's disconcerting. Me, right? The, it, yeah, it's I guess it's the new reality, right? I've never had my phone have a uh, uh, go off like that four times in one day. That's for sure. Well, in the meantime, you were prepping this data that came out today, which is interesting. I mean, I think everyone's been keeping a very close eye on what the housing market is doing now that the the freeze on interest rate hikes ended, and now we've seen another one. Uh, what did you find for for June? There was some a bit of it looked like things are losing a bit of steam. Exactly. Yeah, the things have been losing steam since May, uh, but definitely in June. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going down yet, but the rally that we thought might sort of churn. Uh, through the summer and fall 
and uh, yield some bigger numbers uh, this year. Uh, looks like it's uh, not going to uh, to happen. I mean, if you look back a couple of months, the April was great, right? Yeah. Yeah. April was uh, like people came flying off the sidelines when the Bank of Canada said we're on pause and home prices stopped falling at the same time. Uh, after the Easter weekend, we had a huge burst of demand, but there was no new listings. And so it can only go so far if there's nothing to buy. Uh, and it looks like existing owners, particularly first uh, move up buyers who are adding to their mortgage principal and having to finance that at generational high interest rates are not all that inclined to do that right now. So, you know, if you're looking to buy a home out there, if it's a starter home, you kind of want that, you know, mid 40s uh, household to sort of sell it uh, when they buy something bigger and they're not doing that right now. So right. Um, that was sort of the first iteration of the slowdown and the and the next one is going to be now the bank of canada is raising rates again uh, a lot of observers think that we're at the top right now but the language in the uh communique that was two days ago was very hawkish and so uh the, i think the the uncertainty that that creates there's not another announcement from them until september uh i think the summer market is basically done uh we've revised our forecast down because i i just don't see as many people moving around this year. Interesting. You know? I guess just the rungs on the property ladder are getting further and further apart. And that means taking that leap up is beginning more and more difficult, especially, and you're right with Tiff Macklem saying, well, you know, this should, you know, this may not be the end. It, it, it all depends. That uncertainty, it's odd though, with so much demand out there, just how low listings are. Yeah. Well, I mean, like existing owners supply the existing home market, right? And so uh, if I, you can put yourself in the shoes of someone Almost like myself, you know, a typical a potential move up buyer, mid 40s, teenagers, you got this starter home you've been in for 10 or 12 years and you're looking to move up. But if you're, you know, adding $200,000 to your mortgage principal now, uh, you have to finance that at like ridiculously high interest rates compared to a fixed rate that you might have uh, on your current mortgage, which might be the lowest you'll ever get. And so a lot of people, I think, are just going to stay put and ride that out into 2025, 26, and not sort of take on more debt, let's say, uh, at those high rates. And so uh, my starter home, say, that someone might be waiting to buy is not going to go up for sale if I don't move up to the next one. And then that whole chain reaction of uh, that virtuous circle of, of uh, people moving around doesn't happen. Right. And I, I think that I think that that's what we're seeing right now. Right. All the way down through the rental market and so on and so on and so on. It was interesting to see there were some regional differences and prices are still on average climbing up or at least they're stable and relatively high. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the thing about uh, all that demand bursting forth uh, in April and May uh, without the listings to to sort of dilute that uh, caused prices to not just stabilize, but to take off again. Uh, even in June, uh, we still saw another 2% month over month increase in the MLS home price index, which is a big increase for a single month. You think about inflation, like they're ta- they target 2% per year. This is 2% inflation in home prices in a month. Wow. Uh, and that falls 2% in May and 2% in April. Uh, but I don't think that's going to continue at this point. We're, we've got more listings now coming on just, just recently, uh, which is good. And with the Bank of Canada uh, saying what they're saying and, and sort of signaling what they're signaling, I think a lot of that demand is is going to go back to the sidelines just like it did in 2022 and say, well, let's just see how this plays out uh, in the fall because, uh, you know, this is a long-term play with it's the biggest financial decision most people will ever make and uh, they're borrowing the money and you kind of want to have a little bit of uh, more certainty around that interest rate than we have uh, as of two days ago. Yeah, I guess no one wants to get in now uh, with the expectation that maybe by within six months, interest rates start to fall again, right? Which may or not may or may not be the case, given what Tiff Macklin was saying. Even if they don't hike interest rates again, one gets this impression they're not going to lower them anytime quickly, at least anytime soon. That was certainly their messaging uh, two days ago was, uh, you know, this is going to be like this for for some time now. And I think the, the, the big concern is the... Uh, at what point is it the straw that breaks the camel's back for some 
mortgage holders or people renewing mortgages, uh, the big renewals are coming up in uh, the, the the big percentage renewals in terms of numbers and the 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 uh, the size of the, uh, the change in the interest rate are coming up in 2025 and 2026. Yeah. So they've been trying to wrangle inflation uh, back uh, under control before that. Uh, but the latest announcement says that we're not going to have inflation back to where they'd like it to be uh, uh, until mid-2025. Yeah, you know? it's gonna, yeah, I can see why people are standing. I mean, I'm in the same boat. I think I have uh, you know a very low – I think it's 1.7. And it's certainly not going to be 1.7 when it comes up for renewal. I think it's next year. Uh, Sean Cathcart is speaking to us tonight from Ottawa. He's a senior economist at the Canadian Real Estate Association. They have new data out today just showing uh, a bit of a slowdown in, in June. The housing market across the country losing steam. Really not enough listings out there. And everyone just a little spooked by the, the uh, yet another interest rate hike. That's two in a row now. And just uncertainty out there. So people who are who own, who are thinking of moving up, are thinking that's a big ladder. That's a big gap in that rung to step up the property ladder and are holding off also interest rates, right? If you take on a new mortgage, it's going to be at a much higher borrowing rate. So you've looked ahead, Sean, to the rest of the year. And, and, and inevitably, given what you've seen in June, you've downgraded now the forecast for the rest of 2023. What are you looking at for the next six months? Right. So, um, you know, it's not it's not like the, the market's going to go away. Uh, we have downgraded it from about, uh, I think, 490,000 sales last time around to 465,000 yeah. this time around. Not That's huge. A bo- yeah, not, not, huge. A hu- yeah. not a huge downgrade, but big enough for sure, because uh, the last three forecasts we've ha- had almost unchanged. But we didn't expect the Bank of Canada to start hiking rates again uh, with indications that they're not near the top necessarily yet. So that that was the major impetus for for this downgrade. Uh, otherwise, the demand is there, uh, as we all know. I see it sitting on the sidelines. We saw this movie uh, in 2022, so fairly recently. Uh, you can you sort of predict what people are going to do. It doesn't mean those sales are gone forever. It just means that they're gone for now uh, until uh, – and. Uh, you know the next indication. I think there's a there's a rate announcement in, in in September. There's one in October. So we'll get a good idea of what the Bank of Canada is thinking. Let's hope that you know things. Uh, obviously, things have changed quite rapidly uh, since April, when you know certain observers after that uh, rate announcement were expecting cuts that could have been as soon as now. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> what we were talking. We were saying, yeah, they're going to start dropping this summer and anything but anything but. So definitely not that. That didn't that didn't plan, pan out. But uh, uh, unfortunately, because that would be kind of good if they were had things under control the way they'd they'd like to have them. But you know, it's uh, like they said in the in the release. You know, inflation's sticky. People are still spending money like crazy. If you've been out and about, uh, I know I'm going on vacation in a week, and I'm sure that there's every restaurant I'm going to be at will be full. Every flight that I'm on has been full. Uh, so, yeah. you know, the roaring, it's, uh... the roaring 20s, the roaring 20s redux. Um, although, I mean, if, if you're a if you're a buyer sitting on the sidelines here, uh, the one thing to take note is that at least according to your forecast, you're not seeing any price drop of anything next year. You're seeing prices starting to go up again and they've continued to go up, as you mentioned, fairly quickly, even though there's limited inventory and limited activity out there. Yeah. So I guess in general, the idea would be that the tra- trajectory uh, forward is still upward into 2024, but less so than than would have been the case, uh, you know, in our, in our previous forecast with the Bank of Canada signaling that rates will be higher for longer. Um, you know, if you look at rate forecasts right now, that's what we base our modeling on. And, you know, 5% for the overnight rate, which is where they are now, is generally thought to be the top at this point. Of course, the top was thought to be 4.5% three months ago. Uh, but, you know, we can only base it on uh, what the expectation is. Um, so the language was much more hawkish this time around. Uh, and I, I think that the Bank of Canada is probably hoping that over the summer that things sort of cool off a little bit more than than what their forecast says. And they can start to wind things back in the opposite direction as opposed to continuing uh, to uh, to go higher and higher on that that interest rate but uh so far those revisions over the last year and a half have only been up uh and so we'll see if that's a at a turning point right now uh it's, it makes it hard to forecast anything right now uh because it's not just the rate itself but it's the uncertainty that it creates the psychology that, right the psychology exactly. around the right yeah uh, i mean we can see it yeah well the demand doesn't go anywhere right the demand well it does go somewhere it stays in the rental market and creates uh chaos there which is uh, was easily predictable over the last year and now is, you know, we're, we're sort of cutting off that, 
pressure release valve into the uh, ownership market again uh, with these recent rate hikes. So hopefully, you know, we can get some certainty uh, this fall. And I think that'll bring back demand. Uh, people will adjust what they think they can afford based on current rates. If you if we're really certain we're at a top, people will take variable rates, thinking that the next move is a cut. But, you know, there's no certainty around that right now, which makes yeah. it really hard for a lot of people. It looks pretty status quo. When you look through it, it looks like sort of incremental status quo, prices sort of stable, uh, activity fairly stable. And all this sort of pent up stuff on the sidelines. And as you mentioned, of course, filtering down into other segments of, of the housing market, so to speak, like rentals. Yeah, exactly. And I, so I think like the, the, it's the going forward really that matters from now. So even the data that we've just reported, it's kind of ancient history in a way. Now that uh, the sort of the uh, environment around uh, interest rates and like the, the narrative around that about what's going to happen next, we don't know, uh, has changed. Uh, that, you know, we think that sales are going to sort of level off around where they are, which is average. It's below what the trend would suggest it should be at. So we're still in a recovery year, but it's a slower recovery and it's it's getting stalled right now. And same thing for prices. They really took off in April, uh, May and June uh, faster than anyone would have thought. I think that that's going to sort of level off too. Sean, thank you so much. Sure thing. Anytime. <laughs> We spoke in the last half hour about the struggles for those looking to buy a first home, even those who own a property already trying to move up that property ladder. It's getting tougher with interest rates rising. Prices are still high. And with challenges, of course, come creative solutions. And some of them may seem a bit out of the out of the ordinary. Now, not entirely. I'll, I'll, I'll share a personal story. Uh, when I was young, uh, my parents got together with two other couples, and they bought a triplex in Montreal, one of those iconic Montreal buildings that are three floors, flats on each floor. It had been owned by one person previously. They couldn't afford to buy – none of them could afford to buy the whole thing. So they bought it together, turned it into a co-op, and we all lived on each floor, us on the third and and so on and so forth. And that is becoming – I mean, certainly it's common for families to share homes, uh, siblings, some you know, parents, siblings – along those lines. Um, but what if those just aren't an option? Well, how about buying a home with strangers who find themselves in exactly the same situation as you? And that's exactly what some are doing these days. It's sim somewhat similar to what I was talking about in my situation. Bad. Now, this goes back a long time. This is back in the 70s. Um, and these days, there are places out there, unlike the 70s, that can provide that kind of guidance. One of them is a website called CohoBC.com, set up by realtor Noam Dolgan, who, uh, who specializes in home co-ownership. Um, and one of those who turned to the site for help back in 2021 was Liz Wilcox and her partner. They have two young kids. And lo and behold, they met their match and they bought a house. So how does it work? And better yet, how is it working out? Uh, Noam Dolgan and co-homeowner Liz Wilcox join me now. Thank you both for your time tonight. Hello. Thank you so much. Uh, let's let's start with you, Liz, because it's such an interesting story. I teed it up a little bit, but tell me the situation that you found yourself in back in 2021, and what sort of options you were you had on the table. Yeah, for sure. So uh, back then, so my husband and I, we were fortunate enough. We owned a 680 square foot one bed and den condo, um, and we're trying to make the space work. But then we had our second son, and after that, we really felt like we needed more space. So. When I guess when we kind of like looked at what we really wanted for our families or well, sorry, for our family was was more space. And then the other thing we wanted was to stay in the city. And right. that was like problematic because what we really wanted just didn't line up with the amount of money that we had in our budget. So we had looked at bigger condos like two bed, two bath condos. We'd also kind of looked further afield out in the suburbs and even up in Squamish and that and then. When it came down to it, we we decided we really wanted to stay in the city. So I guess that was part that was important to us. And right. one of the only options to do that was to look at co-ownership. So was trying yeah, to find I, someone I, else to split a house with. Yeah, I noticed you used the plural families earlier, which is interesting because it sort of speaks to where you know, you're I at. And you met up with families. You, <laughs> you went straight to families. Yeah, you, you you met with you met with this other family, I gather. And you hit it off. I mean, that's it was. Uh, how did that? How did that unfold? Yeah, so it's actually really quick because, well, we've been talking to friends and other families that we met in the neighborhood for a little while, trying to find someone who was interested. And then we had connected with Noam and with his website and with Coho BC, 
And so we decided, we asked if we could put an ad out in one of his newsletters. So we put together an ad, we sent it out, and our co-ownership partners, Ashley and Chris, replied. And that was how we connected. So it was through Noam. Right. Uh, and Noam, is, is, that, uh, is that sort of the, I, I guess every story is a little bit different, but is that sort of the typical story that you're hearing now? Yeah, um, we're definitely working with people to find partners. I mean, a lot of folks do succeed in finding their partner through friends or family. Uh, and we will help those people kind of explain the process to those to their friends and get them on board. Uh, but certainly we've built, based around the success of, of people like Liz, we've built out a classified uh, section on our website. And we also do online um, kind of speed dating type events and in-person events. And we even have a survey people can fill out and we can try to match you directly. So we're working on multiple fronts to try to find, find those, those right uh, teams. Uh, but it's, it's really great when someone like Liz steps forward and identifies themselves and says, this is what I want to do. This is who I am. I'm looking for somebody. And then other folks can kind of gravitate towards them. Yeah, it, I mean, it really says so much about what's happened to the housing market in the last 20 years. That, but people, I mean, obviously, when there are challenges, people come up with creative solutions, right? Absolutely. And as you said, this has been happening for generations. This is not a new concept. But the increase in pricing certainly has made it a much more popular solution. And also just the general social isolation that we're feeling in society. As our cities grow, surprisingly, we're feeling more isolated. People are realizing that getting into a condo or a half-duplex with a complete stranger is not necessarily a supportive housing environment. Um, COVID certainly exacerbated all of the need to make sure your house was, was, was your castle, really. Um, and so people are looking at this as a more affordable and better housing solution. Right. Liz, how about the intricacies? I mean, this is a big decision. You were moving out of the condo that you had. It's probably, I, I suspect, the biggest investment you've ever made. And you were doing it with, with what were still essentially strangers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was definitely the biggest investment we'd ever made, given the Vancouver housing market. And so there were lots of things that I guess that we had to think through. Um, one thing was sort of was the budget piece. It was important to us to find someone who could do a 50-50 partnership. And um, so that was a lot of money for, for a lot of people to kind of try and line that up. So finding someone that had the budget that matched um, the timeline, we were looking to move in the next six months or to find something in the next six months. So that had to match up and the location, all of those different kind of things had to, had to line up. And then, of course, we had to click with the people. So right. And the I, kids. I really yeah, the whole thing. That we did. <laughs> yeah. Just so people understand, I mean, it's it's not as if you sort of it's not like full house or anything. You actually, I gather, created sort of two separate living spaces within the house that you bought. Yeah, for sure. We so we bought a, a house that was originally divided into four suites. And so uh, pretty much Ashley and Chris took the second floor in the attic and we took the main floor and the basement. And then there's some shared space in the basement as well. So we have our own separate separate units. Um, so it's it's pretty much like a duplex, like so right. All that part separate. Yeah, kind of like what I grew up in uh, to some extent. The the how has it been? I mean, you, you've been there for nearly two years now, or I guess almost must be coming up on two years if it's not there already. Um, how's it been so far? How's everyone enjoying it? Yeah, so far it's it's been great. Um, so it's really nice to have another family who is invested in the house kind of in that sense um there is a lot of maintenance that goes with the house so it's it's nice to have someone to to do the chores with to do projects with it's nice to have that little bit of community that we do have so that that piece has been really great and we get along um at, at the same time we weren't friends before so there's not a lot of pressure to do tons of stuff together so that piece is nice as well yeah, that that was I found that curious too because sometimes getting into something that um, that significant with a friend, if it goes wrong, it can be really difficult. Whereas this is still, I guess, in many ways, a business arrangement. I mean, your friends and your kids get along and all of that works, but it's a business arrangement. Yeah, exactly. It came down to like we had to discuss a lot of stuff, like finances and stuff that maybe we wouldn't necessarily have discussed with other people, but we definitely had to put everything out on the table, so to speak. Uh, in terms of, and then set up a, um, a co-ownership agreement to make sure all the, if anybody had to exit, then we had strategies for that. 
and talk about all of those different things. So it is more like a business arrangement from from that sense. Right. No, I guess I guess the the, the caveat here is that if you're going to get and do something like this, you need to really know what you're doing, right? You need to be organized and be prepared for for just how different it is than than buying something by yourself. And that's how yes. Coho came to be. We were looking yeah. at people who were doing this because it needed to be done, but they weren't necessarily getting the proper legal agreement, having the right conversations, or they would try to do that after they'd already put an offer on a house, um, and or they would get into the wrong financial arrangement that had less flexibility. And so Coho was really a collection of, of realtors as well as lawyers and financial institutions who understood co-ownership and could guide people through the process from beginning to end to set themselves up for success. And similarly with friends or family, a lot of people think with family you might not need an agreement like this, but it is really essential to have these things all laid out, your exit strategy, your delinquency, who's responsible for what, any rules you might set between you. Um, And if you discuss all those things when you're on really good terms going into this, then it doesn't become an issue when there's a dispute down the road. You know, if you if you wait till there's a problem, usually tensions get high and people get, you know, uh, obstinate just because. But if you discuss all these things in advance and plan when you're on good terms, then when something an issue arises, you look to your agreement and you go, oh, right, we already discussed this. Here's the solution. Right. Oh, that sounds like good advice in just about every walk of life. Right. Um, Liz, I mean, tell me about sort of the ups and downs of it, what people should know about about this situation, because I'm sure there have been, you know, good days and bad days in all of this. Maybe not so many bad, but a few, no doubt. I'd say overall, so far, it's been a really positive experience. Um, I think that some of the things to know is that, like, communication and collaboration are key. So it's great to have people that are looking to work together, that you can make mistakes together and then move on. So there kind of has to be, I guess, a focus on the overall goal while being able to do all the small tasks in that. There is the need to trust the other the other party or the other, like, like the partner. So that piece, I guess, is also important. Um, but overall, so far, it's, it's, it really has been a positive experience. Right. I was thinking because um, you live you lived in something similar to what I live in now. I know some of my neighbors, but not really many of them. You know, life in, in cities can be um, isolating at times. And this sounds like it has that benefit of also being a bit of a community builder as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this has actually been, it was really great for us because last fall we had a, a bit of a stressful experience. And Ashley and Chris were extremely supportive and had me and the kids over for dinner for a, a whole week trying to help us out while we were going through a rough time. And I sometimes think that the co-ownership and the community piece of that, that was a huge piece that we wouldn't have had without doing this together with them. And so for me, that was a huge, a huge benefit of it that kind of had gets talked about the community aspect and then to experience it and have people so close by who were ready to help. That was really fantastic. No, I was noticing that, um, I mean, there are obviously examples like Liz's out there, but you, you've been involved in some pretty interesting uh, initiatives as well. There was the cottages bought out in West Van, I think it was. I mean, uh, there's a lot of different, this is not a one size fits all sort of situation. No, absolutely not. I mean, there's so much of our housing stock is designed for multiple families, historically for renters. Um, but you have yeah, the, the Horseshoe Bay cottages were eight small little cottages on two lots that had been vacation cottages 100 years ago for the steamboat industry. And that we were able to bring a group of eight owner occupiers together around that property to create a micro community. Uh, you see a big push in farm hamlets people coming together to acquire rural properties and either work them as organic farms or just have more access to outdoor, outdoor space. Um, a lot of our, our cities now allow for two homes on one lot, so houses with laneway homes or other auxiliary dwellings, so it really allows people to come together and each have their own little standalone home. And you do have people coming together to live collectively, the Golden Girls type model. Um, there's one great example of that in Kamloops called the Rare Birds Co-op, where they have six kind of wings. Everyone has a, a bedroom, bathroom, uh, and they share the living room, dining room, kitchen. So there are all sorts of different levels. You kind of can choose what level of community you want or versus how much independence you want. And then you, you, we get to help you navigate the market to find the unique housing that fits your needs. 
Yeah, and and I mean, I suppose it's not for everyone, right? You must you must give people advice on whether or not you think. I mean, I guess everyone is suitable to some extent, but not everyone was built to live communally, right? No, absolutely not. You have to be a good communicator. You have to be able to compromise, um, and you have to be able to realize that you know real estate is never a, a truly liquid asset. But when it is time for you to move on, it's a little bit of a slower process on the exit because you need to give your partner time to find a new partner or buy you out. Um, so it definitely is is only for a portion of us, but that portion seems to be growing. The latest statistics say up to 50% of non-owners see co-ownership as one of their viable pathways to home ownership. And that number would have been down closer to 5% just a few years ago. Yeah, I noticed that. I noticed they didn't put the word strangers in, but it still shows that a lot of people, especially 18 to 34, those who look at it, the housing market and see nothing but, you know, nothing but impossibility, that there are options out there that uh, that may make sense, right? That that could make sense for them. Um, uh, Liz, I guess a, a last word to the two of you. Um, when you got into this, w- did you go in eyes wide open thinking, okay, we will see how this works out? And, and, and it seems like everything everything kind of has. Yeah, for sure. We definitely went in being like, let's figure this out. But we definitely had a make, let's make this work kind of attitude, I think as well. Like let's work together. Um, this way we can, we can get more together than we can on our own. And we'd like to be here long-term. So let's do what we need to do to, to make it work. Yeah. And, and two boys in a one bedroom, one den, 680 foot condo would, would not have been, would not, it sounds like it would have been pretty cramped, pretty tight, tight corners. Yes, it definitely was. <laughs> Yeah. So it's, it's I, I, great I, I, now because we have a rec room and we have a backyard. We we have all the the space that we need now. Yeah. No. No. You brought it up earlier. Just I guess there are you, you know when you do, when one party wants to leave. I was noticing there was a story uh, in an art in an interview that you gave about one party uh, wanting to leave when when someone decides they're going to move on. It's a little more complicated. I guess you have to allow for the other owner to choose a new owner to come in with them, right? And that's been one of the really exciting things we've been doing recently is selling shares in properties, either people who own a full property and want to bring a partner on or people who were bought in as a co-ownership agreement 10, 20 years ago. And now it's time for one partner to move on and the other one wants to stay. And so when you go and sell a unit like that, certainly you need to find someone who's willing to pay your price and your terms. But that person also needs to be approved. They need to go through a dating process um, with the remaining party and sign on to the legal agreement. So it's a really interesting process of, of matchmaking around a particular property. But yeah, so right. when you want to leave a property, generally you give your partner the first right to buy you out. If they can't do it, then you turn to us or, or someone else to sell a share of the, of the unit. And then if in the end of the day they can't find a good, a good partner, uh, maybe they're too picky, whatever it is, you do retain the right to force a sale in the property eventually. So you know you can get your assets out, but you're giving your remaining party a pathway to try to be able to stay in. Yeah, to try to keep it amicable. Um, and, and this isn't just happening. I mean, you mentioned already uh, other places. This isn't just happening in Vancouver. I would imagine this is happening in lots of places. Absolutely. We have a sister organization we work with a little bit in Ontario called GoCo Solutions. And there are groups across the U.S., Australia, the U.K. Uh, it's really become a global phenomenon. Well, Noam and Liz, thank you so much for uh, for shedding some light on what this is all about. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for covering this topic. Yeah, this is working great. Mm-hmm. This is, in fact, we can push harder than we thought. That's NASA's Dr. Jane Rigby talking about exactly 12 months since they released the first stunning images captured, or stunning image, I should say, captured by the James Webb Telescope. It began to give us a new understanding of the first galaxies to form after the Big Bang. Since then, it has helped shed new light on the entire universe. Scientists have been analyzing data and images collected from the Webb Telescope. They are the first steps in what's hoped to be Webb's long journey, the result of nearly three decades of work with a price tag of 14 billion dollars Canadian and international collaboration, of course, between NASA, the European Space Agency and the Canadian Space Agency. Canada's had a big role in all this. It has already gone further than anything before it, giving us the ability to look at faraway galaxies and peek into how stars are born and how they die. Christopher Britt is with the Space Science Telescope Institute. Up until now, we've basically seen the title page of the universe, the, and then jumping straight into like chapter 10. Uh, for the first time, we're able to go back and read those earlier chapters in the universe's story. 
Well, someone who's been watching this all very closely is my next guest, Robert Smith. He's been with us before. He is a historian of science specializing in astronomy at the University of Alberta. He's been following the development and design of the Webb Telescope since its early stages all the way back in the early 2000s. He did the same for its predecessor, Hubble, so he knows this stuff. And Robert Smith joins us now. Thank you so much for your time again. My pleasure. Well, one year already, it seems like time has, uh, has flown by. How would you sum up uh, the success of this one so far? I think it's, uh, uh, things have gone remarkably smoothly. Normally, with big, complex space, space missions, you would expect some sorts of hitches, problems that have to be overcome. But I think what's striking with Webb is just how smoothly thing, things have really gone. The optical system for the telescope was better than people had hoped. The um, operational Aspects of the telescope, getting it to different parts of the sky, all of that has gone very, very well. So this is a striking difference from what happened with the Hubble Space Telescope back in uh, the early 1990s when there were big problems for the first three years or so. So Webb has been up and going full blast, really, I think, for the last year. And the fact is that there have been astronomers from 41 different countries involved in making observations. There are over 700 scientific papers either published or in the works. And with uh, any luck, the telescope should now last for about another 19, 20 years. And so there's a lot to uh, look forward to. Yeah, I, I read a quote that you gave before it launched. Uh, I, I guess it was uh, Hubble had probably it said was Hubble had probably trans helped transform astronomy, and so the hope is that the James Webb Sp Space Telescope will do the same. And I guess in, even in its first year, seven hundred scientific papers that that is a lot of information being collected, analyzed, and published. Yes, it is. It, it's really quite striking, and and um, the size of the different teams involved with uh, uh, web research is also striking. So um, one group includes over uh, 100 different astronomers from lots of different places, international astronomers, as well as from North America. And so the scale of the effort, I think, is what has um, impressed me. Big, complex spacecraft, Lots and lots of people involved, but things going really smoothly. This will be, uh, I know this is a question that probably you could speak about for the rest of the show, but of, of the big things that we've managed to see and learn, thanks to Webb already, what would you list as sort of the top couple uh, of things that we now understand better than we did a year ago? I think there's been some particularly fascinating information provided on the very early universe. That is, what was happening fairly soon after the Big Bang, and in astronomical terms, fairly soon is a few hundred million years. So uh, observations have been made of um, galaxies that are at a distance of about 13.4 billion light years. And so that's about 320 million years after the Big Bang. And so I think it's really a, a striking thought to think that the light from some of these incredibly distant galaxies was traveling for 13.4 billion years. And then um, that light hit the uh, mirror for the James Webb Space Telescope and the instruments on the, uh, the telescope were able to analyze that light. Uh, so the very distant universe is providing uh, um, lots of things for the astronomers to study. I think also what's been uh, very impressive has been the work with exoplanets. These are planets that are going around other stars, not talking about planets going around our own star in the solar system, but planets going around distant stars. And so one, for example, um, an, uh, an exoplanet uh, called WASP-39b, there have been analyses of the atmosphere of that exoplanet and the atmosphere contains water, sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide, sodium and potassium. And I think it really is um, remarkable that 
back even as late as 1994, nobody was sure there were planets going around distant stars that we had detected. Now we've seen thousands of them. And it's also possible now to look at the atmospheres of these exoplanets. What's in the atmosphere? Could there be uh, signs of life that could be detected? And so on. And so WASP-39b has been analyzed by a range of different instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope. And one of those instruments is, in fact, the Canadian-built instrument called NIRUS. And so, uh, as you were saying, I think it is also important to keep in mind that Canada has played an important role in this entire enterprise, too. Yeah, and that's given us some some access too, right, to this. I mean, I gather the collaboration here is, as always, when it comes to space, the collaboration seems to do away with all the sort of geopolitics that exists back on the planet. But uh, Canada's had some, been able to get some some time as well on it, right? That's right. The idea was originally that um, the Canadian contrib- contribution towards the construction and the involvement in the construction of the telescope meant that Canadian astronomers would get about 5% of the observing time um, with the telescope. And we've been using that. I mean, I, I, I guess with that many, that much stuff coming out, it's, I guess it's what one thing that it strikes me is that there's been so much stuff coming out from James Webb. We're all very captivated by the images. I think, I think the average human being loves the images, but it must be just a constant flow of information for those who are watching it for scientific reasons. Absolutely, and it's um, uh, the case that some of the big observing programs, the analysis of the data that's being collected is still ongoing. So one particular project, for example, involving 32 days of observing time with the telescope, and that's an enormous amount of time to be looking out at uh, one bit of the sky, the analysis of that data is still coming in. So there's been a lot done in the first year, but not all of the results uh, are yet in from that first year's sets of observations. That uh, is very much in the works. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what it is is just there's been so much information coming in. It's 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 hard to pinpoint exactly. And you've mentioned some of the things exoplanets. I think there was the the one I remembered was something, and this is I had to write this down was HIP six five four two six B, which was this giant about twelve times the mass of Jupiter. I remember there were images of that at some point, um, and and stuff about what's inside a black hole. I mean, this is all stuff that is far beyond the limits of my understanding, to be honest. But it is it is fascinating sounding stuff. Yes, and so uh, there are some objects, incredibly distant objects, um, called quasars, where there are what are called supermassive black holes at their centers. And so uh, um, JWST has been able to determine that these black holes range in in masses from about 600 million solar masses to about um, uh, 2 billion Uh, solar masses. And so uh, that is another set of investigations that are ongoing, looking at these very early galaxies, looking at the supermassive black holes at their centers. Uh, Another kind of fun (laughs) finding that I quite enjoyed was one of the moons of um, Saturn called Enceladus. There's an enormous plume that's emerging from it. Um, Oh, and that this plume contains a, a range of um, different materials. It's got um, ice crystals, uh, water vapor, organic chemicals, and these are, this is all spewing out of crevices on, on the moon's surface. And it's even possible to determine how much is coming out, and it turns out it's about 79 gallons worth per second. And so if you wanted to fill up an Olympic-sized swimming pool with that, it would take you a couple of hours. If you were going to fill up an Olympic-sized swimming pool with your garden hose, that would be a couple of weeks. So Ah. uh, it underlines, I think, that JWST has been employed for objects within the solar system all the way out to the most distant objects anybody's ever been able to observe. And so the the range of the telescope, I I think, is something that, again, is extremely impressive. 
And Robert Smith is with us. He's been chronicling uh, the activities of the James Webb Telescope for many, many years. Now, of course, it's now uh, delivered its first images a year ago this week. And we're talking about just what an incredible amount of information it's been providing, how flawless it's sort of its launch and its and everything it's done in its first year has been. Um, if, if you're not familiar um, uh, Robert wrote a book back a while back now called The Space Telescope, A Study of NASA Science, Technology, and Politics. And it was a New York Times notable book back in 1989. And I had read, Robert, that you're writing another book on this one. And I was wondering how it's coming along. Yes, that's one of my major activities each day where I try <laughs> and get a bit further along with, with this um, uh, telescope. And so the history really goes back to the to the 1980s and what i'm finding particularly interesting with now the scientific results coming in is to compare what people were hoping for planning for back in say 1993 and here we are in 2023 what's changed why did it change is it exceeding uh, expectations those kinds of questions are in play but I, I think maybe the biggest um, point for me so far has been that back, say, in the early 90s, nobody was sure there were any exoplanets that had been detected. Now, as I was mentioning, there are thousands of them. So that's a really big area of science that people weren't thinking about too hard in the very, very early days of JWST, just because there were no exoplanets to study back in 1993. So astronomy in general has advanced, I think, enormously with these new technological capabilities that have been provided by the Hubble Space Telescope, now the James Webb Space Telescope, and a slew of other space and ground-based observatories as well. So in a, in a way, this is a kind of, I think, a kind of golden age of astronomy. And that old question, you brought it up, I think, back a year, a little more than a year ago now, is there life beyond Earth, right? I mean, that's always been the question. And it seems like we have a much better eye on other things these days. Yes, and the um, successor that people are talking about for James Webb, because James Webb can't go on forever. I mean, at some point, it will, it will stop operating. But the, the observatory that people are thinking hard about is something called the Habitable Worlds Observatory, which will be a telescope that will be optimized to study the atmospheres of distant exoplanets. Um, now, don't, don't hold your breath because it's not likely to be up and operating if things go well, up and operating until the 2040s. So it, it takes a long time to build these really uh, powerful but complex telescopes. Right. And, and yet, though we build, as you as you pointed out in your work, we build on the knowledge that Hubble gave us with James Webb. It is it is a layer by layer process, I would suspect. That's right. And no one telescope can ever answer all the questions. And so uh, there are regions of the electromagnetic spectrum. We, we see with our eyes optical light, but there's ultraviolet, infrared, X-ray, gamma ray and so on. So James Webb is an extremely powerful telescope in the infrared region of the spectrum. But uh, astronomers would like also to be getting information from other regions like ultraviolet, X-ray, and so on. So there are plans for uh, new kinds of telescopes that will be working in other regions of the electromagnetic spectrum, as I say, beyond optical light, which is what we were pretty much restricted to until really the, the, the 1950s. And so all of our information before that point about the universe was, was coming from optical light. But now astronomers have a far wider range of wavelength infrared, as uh, I was saying for James Webb or Hubble, which is focused much more in optical and ultraviolet. So you want the telescopes to kind of complement each other ideally. Well, Robert, as always, thank you so much for your time. It's great to catch up, and good luck with the book. Thanks so much. 
One of the big stories this week was the release on parole of 73-year-old Leslie Van Houten, a member of the uh, infamous Manson family who'd been convicted of murder back in 1969. She uh, had taken part in the murders of uh, a couple, Grocer Lino and his wife, Rosemary LaBianca, on August 9th, 1969. Of course, the Manson family crimes date back more than half a century now, some 54 years. And, and he died in prison six years ago, and yet we... This has thrust them back in the spotlight, and it feels like they've never been very far out of the spotlight ever since. Um, you know, the legacy of those two nights in L.A. in August of 1969, the murders of seven people over two nights, including the actress Sharon Tate, to Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger of the Folger uh, Coffee Fortune, two others on August 8th, as I mentioned, Lino and his wife, Rosemary uh, LaBianca. Now, again, one of those convicted of the murders of the LaBiancas was 19-year-old Leslie Van Houten at the time. Uh, she was from a middle class church-going family in suburban L.A. Her sentence uh, was death at first. It was commuted to life in prison in 1972 when California abolished the death penalty. She had joined Manson's commune along with a friend in 1968. Uh, a year later, she would become one of the faces of the most reviled and notorious, notorious crimes of that era, perhaps in U.S. history. And here she is back in 1999. She spoke to ABC, uh, Van Houten did, about Manson. You know, it didn't happen overnight. He spent a lot of time taking middle-class girls and remolding them. Yeah, that was uh, Leslie Van Houten speaking uh, to ABC back in 1999. Now, she'd been granted bail in the past, but the governor, the state's governor, had stepped in to stop it. This time, Gavin Newsom says he was disappointed by the decision, but will not intervene, uh, saying this, there are very slim chances of any further appeals of this decision succeeding. The families of the Manson family's victims have long campaigned against any kind of release for those responsible. And uh, the LaBianca's daughter, Corey, uh, said this back in 2016. I really do not believe that anyone who kills two people, and especially having in such a brutal manner, should ever be let out of prison. That's uh, Corey Labianca back in 2016. She reacted to the decision to uh, release uh, Van Houten by saying, quote, my family and I are heartbroken because we're once again reminded of all the years that we've not had my father and my stepmother with us. My children, my grandchildren never got an opportunity to get to know either of them, which has been a huge void uh, for my family. To add to this story, at least for a Canadian audience, there is, in fact, a Canadian connection to this release. Saskatchewan-born Carlene Faith, who passed away in 2017, was a writer and a longtime professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver. She'd worked closely with Van Houten and the other so-called Manson girls in 1972, while a graduate student in the History of Consciousness program at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Uh, she founded the Santa Cruz Women's Prison Project, and through that group, uh, Faith came into contact with Van Houten and long advocated for her release. She even wrote a book called The Long Prison Journey of Leslie Van Houten. Now, another academic and author who's written extensively about the Manson family, Leslie Van Houten, and the work of Carlene Faith is Jeffrey Melnick. Um, he's a professor of American Studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. And his book is called Creepy Crawling, Charles Manson and the Many Lives of America's Most Infamous Family. And uh, Jeffrey Melnick joins me now. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. This again, I mean, anytime the word Charles Manson or Manson family comes up, I mean, there is this sort of, uh, you know, this this awareness frenzy that happens. Uh, but just your initial reaction to the release of Leslie Van Houten. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'm somebody who's very publicly been advocating, you know, for her release on social media anyway, and whenever I give talks or interviews. So I'm, I'm clearly on record as being very pleased that uh, Van Houten has finally been released from prison. She's been in prison for over 50 years. If anybody is a, an example of what we call rehabilitation in the uh, context of incarceration, she's it. Um, and so I'm, I'm mostly just feeling pleased. I understand that there's complications for people. Um, I hope we'll talk a little bit about what um, the victims' rights people, particularly Sharon Tate's family, are saying about this. But for now, I'll just shorthand it by saying that's my initial stand. Yeah. A reminder for listeners who Leslie Van Houten was and her role in 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 the Manson family, her her role in the murders of of the Labiancas. You know, some some supporters of Van Houten have you know tried to make the case that she particularly particularly should be shown mercy because she didn't literally murder anybody. I always thought that was kind of a specious claim. She held down uh, Rosemary Labianca while her some of her comrades were uh, doing the violence and then stabbed her repeatedly. 
after her after the death uh, of LaBianca is what the you know forensic people were able to figure out. So Van Houten, you know, was, was it was the second night in August of 1969 of the uh, set of murders that the Manson family committed. The first night, obviously, was Sharon Tate, who was married to Roman Polanski, right. and a few of their friends who were with them in Benedict Canyon. The second night was this couple, Rosemary. Uh, and Lino LaBianca. And that was the night that Van Houten was involved with. She was not involved the first night. Right. The, the reaction, and you've mentioned it already, the reaction from the families of the victims of uh, both those nights have been have been railing against uh, any any sense in any sense that that anybody who was there might be released. Um, and they've come out again to say the same thing. I mean, they make compelling arguments about how, you know, there there shouldn't be um, there shouldn't be any rehabilitation for someone like Leslie Van Houten. But 50 years behind bars is an awfully long time. Right. It absolutely is. And one thing, Ben, that we need to be really clear about is that victims' rights has really changed from what its initial meaning was to what it's become uh, in the last couple of decades. And the Tate family has been largely responsible for that. So let me preface this by saying, of course, the Tate family suffered this truly horrific, heartbreaking, lifelong traumatic loss. Uh, of Sharon Tate. That said, um, in the years after uh, the murder of Sharon Tate, the Tate family have become very much involved with what has to be, in the U.S. context, has to be seen as a very right-wing effort that begin from the principle that, there, as you said, that there is no rehabilitation. So it's things like three strikes and you're out laws. It's the ending of conjugal visits. It's incredibly draconian parole policies. In this case, it's particularly interesting that the Tate family even enters the conversation because, as I've already said, Leslie Van Houten wasn't involved in the murder uh, of Sharon Tate. She was literally not there that night. But the Tate uh, members of the Tate family, spokespeople for the Tate family, often say things like, "Well, she didn't. She's never apologized to us." And there's a, a sort of a kind of odd logic there of why somebody who wasn't involved in any direct way with their loss should be apologizing to them. You know, if, if one looks at the circumstances, uh, one would expect that someone, like Le- someone in Leslie Van Houten's shoes, if it hadn't been such a high profile and continues to be such a high profile uh, and talked about crime spree, that she would have been released years ago. I mean, based just on the ideas of, of parole and what she had done and uh, over the years, that the, the high profile of this in many ways uh, prevented her release. I think that's right, Ben. I mean, it's always hard to measure because it involves kind of counterfactuals. If it hadn't been high profile, how would it, you know, and, and we can find kind of evidence on either side of the balance sheet. But I think it's really clear, you know, because with with uh, Van Houten and Bobby Beausoleil and Fran Winkle, a number of times the parole board has um, approved their application for parole. And uh, again and again, what's happened is that the governor of California has reversed the decision because the governor always has final say. And so you have to say on some level, there is a kind of politics that has to do with pleasing various constituencies. You know, the Manson case has had multi-generational impact. I mean, that's probably an understatement. Um, If you talk to people my age, I was born in the early 1960s. We talked uh, about people older. This is this is something that's been in our consciousness, particularly for people in California, you know, since that night in 1969 and certainly since the publication of the prosecutor's book in 1974. Um, and so there's Helter, a way Helter that Skelter, right? Yes, Helter of course. Skelter, right. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's almost been impossible to get what I, I think what you're hinting at is, is just kind of like a, a fair hearing when it comes to parole. Um, and so you look at these people and say, like, OK, like if the system is based on the idea that there's two roles, basically, to being in prison. One is just straight up punishment. You have to pay for what you did. And the second is, can you can you be brought to a better place? Can you be turned into a, a safe and productive citizen? And Van Houten, and this is one of the things I've been particularly interested in, in my research, from very early on in her days in prison in the 70s, has been the object of lots of attention, including, uh, as I've discussed elsewhere, um, this work by a number of activists and academics from who are organized around University of California at Santa Cruz, led by Carlene Faith, who was a radical Canadian uh, criminologist from Simon Fraser. And she had this idea that if she went in with her comrades and just took the lessons of what we now call second wave feminism and mm. critical race theory, um, that maybe they could help these women get to a better, more conscious place. And and guess what? It, it worked. <laughs> um, that's the kind of amazing thing is um, Van Houten really became you know, if you want to use the language of the time, she kind of got deprogrammed um, or the, you know, the the spell of Charlie Manson's brainwashing was released by the education uh, and organizing work that Carlene Faith and her crew did in, in jail uh, in the 1970s. Jeffrey Melnick is a professor of American studies at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His book is called Creepy Crawling, Charles Manson and the Many Lives of America's Most Infamous Family. Um, 
Jeffrey, I was interested when, when when the release of Leslie Van Houten was announced, you spoke about Carlene Faith. I don't know if a lot of Canadians even know that a Canadian, a Canadian academic uh, was so integral in this in this view of, of rehabilitation that these were specifically and you talk about the Manson girls. I know that sounds a bit, uh, you know, derogatory, but it, it, back in the day, how these women were seen. And then what that meant for their journey through the criminal justice system as well. I mean, uh, Van Houten always painted herself very much as a victim in this, to some extent, of Charles Manson. How how does that work? I think that's great. That's a that's a great question, Ben. I really appreciate you laying it out uh, like that. And and I'm with you in in being uncomfortable using the phrase Manson girls. But as you said, that was very much the media framing uh, of them in the time. And so to be historically accurate, it probably is best that we we at least you know sort of note that. So right. One thing Carla, Carlene Faith saw and I think helped Leslie Van Houten and uh, Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel, those were the three that, that she and her crew visited in jail, is she understood them as, as somehow parallel to what in the 1970s was, was becoming understood as battered wife syndrome. Um, in other words, people who had been so dominated physically and or uh, mentally by a powerful man that they had lost their ability to make you know, sane and rational decisions. So part of their work was they basically understood the work they had to do as a kind of meta version of what the 1970s was called consciousness raising. The idea that through reading, conversation, reflection, you could literally change your consciousness. This came out of the second wave feminist movement. Women would you know, generally gather in kind of peer-oriented groups to do this kind of work. Faith did it in a much more sort of classroom sort of way with the women, but she had them read all kinds of books and discuss them uh, and articles on everything you know, ranging from battered wife syndrome to African-American music, just a full kind of college course of consciousness raising. And that was under the auspices of an amazing prison warden, Virginia Carlson, who I've never been able to learn much about. And the the work they did seems to have substantially changed the three women um, in question and, and really got them out from under the control uh, of Manson, who was an incredible, you know, himself was what we'd have to call an incarcerated personality. He's somebody who's, you know, uh, key years of his raising were mostly spent behind bars. Um, he literally came out of jail in the summer of love, 1967, and began this work, this mission of his, which was to sort of gather um, a family around him, mostly of young women who had come in their own families of origins from very abusive places, sometimes literal physical abuse through some evidence that some of them were sexually abused, and most were at least somehow rendered vulnerable by the, the the families they came from right. that were well, not it's sort of well-functioning cl- families. It's sort of classically what we now understand to be cults, right? I mean, <laughs> there, there would be a surge of them in the 70s. Uh, but yeah, yeah absolutely. Do you, why do you think it's been? And you know, I, I when I look at the crimes committed, of course, the crimes were so public and so horrific that the idea that this would be a case where you would lock someone up and throw away the key uh, does have a certain appeal to it. You can see why the families are upset. At the same time, um, you know, it, it's it's how do you view someone like Leslie Van Houten as either someone who came, if you believe they were Manson followers, then does that absolve them of the responsibility of their crimes? And in the long run, does it make them rehabilitatable? And when you look at Leslie Van Houten's cases, one thinks that the answer is probably yes, probably yes in this case. And yet she's been afforded very, very little sympathy and very little uh, benefit of the doubt when it comes to this conversation. Yeah, that's really true. And I have to say, my own thinking about it was very much shaped by the work that John Waters, the filmmaker, right. uh, did. He's been a, you know, he started as somebody, he by his own admission, who just was kind of jokey and superficial about the Manson family. He had some kind of, you know, uh, ha-ha-ha moments in, in some of his early movies about the Manson family. And then he started visiting Leslie Van Houten in prison and got to know her and became, you know, true friends with her. And, and it's just from this basic and yet radical position that he took her as a person and an equal um, and saw that she was really working um, to figure out how she could have participated in such a ghastly crime and how could she possibly move down the road from there to a sort of, you know, a better and healthier place. So again, I never want to gainsay the pain of, of the, you know, family members, um, uh, you know, the lost opportunities, the, the, you know, the shortened lives. It's just brutal. And, you know, it's one of those things, Ben, where two things can be true at once. We can honor that pain. We can, you know, remember in as much detail as possible the, the lives of the people who are lost. And we can also, at the same time, say, now what do we do with these, you know, the the, the perpetrators of these crimes? You know, Manson was clearly somebody who did not get rehabilitated 
one iota. Other members of the family, you know, have have traveled very different paths. And Van Houten, you know, she was one, one of the interesting things about Van Houten is that there was a moment in the late 70s where she was out of jail um, briefly because she was granted a retrial based on some procedural stuff at her original trial. And she lived out in the world. She was a uh, if I'm remembering correctly, I think she worked as a paralegal. Yeah, she, she became a, a legal secretary, I think. Yeah, yeah, legal secretary. Right. She, she was this just kind of quiet, you know, just um, non-noticeable citizen in a number of ways. And so you sort of already have the evidence of how far she had traveled in those, you know, you know, eight or nine years that she'd been in jail. So it's it's a it is a fascinating story where we have to. It's hard. I, I just want to be the first to acknowledge, like it's really hard to keep both those things in our mind and in our hearts at the same time. Um, but that's that's I think the reality is that that both this horrible, painful thing happened and the people who perpetrated this horrible, painful thing maybe could live out in the world again and contribute something to the culture, you know, uh, uh, after taking away um, so much. Right. And a reminder, at 73, Leslie Van Houten remains in, you know, remains under the supervision of the prison system, technically, at least for another while. Right. Absolutely. Parole doesn't mean that she just kind of, you know, uh, is free as a bird. Uh, you know, uh, it, just in case that's not clear for Canadian list- listeners in the U.S. system, it means that there's all kinds of check ins she'll have to do. Well, Jeffrey Melnick, thank you so much for your uh, for your insight on this. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben.